0: The next lecture in this series is on Monday, the 11th of May, when Miriam Foote teaches, uh, gives a lecture, excuse me, on the history of bookbinding. She's given this lecture before in this country, and my spies inform me it is one very much worth listening to. Our lecturer tonight is Andrew Brown from the Cambridge University Press, who has a title, as many of you know, that is entirely of my making, and the first half of which is not only entirely frivolous but also probably entirely erroneous. Furthermore, the illustration on the poster for tonight's lecture has Japanese text on it which I cannot read and would be very grateful if there's anyone here who will read the poster and tell me what I've perpetrated in addition to what I've already perpetrated to our poor speaker. whom It's a great pleasure to welcome to Columbia tonight to give reflections of an academic publisher, Andrew Brown. Thank you, Terry. Good evening. The the title of of this talk, as Terry has properly acknowledged, uh, was his idea. Though I guess I share some of the responsibility by default in that I was unable to come up with anything better or worse uh, when he asked me some months ago to suggest a title that wouldn't be too boring. Had he asked me more recently, uh, just a few weeks ago, I might have suggested, as an alternative, whoops, sorry which was more or less the text of the message we received from our shippers when they announced that a container of books, some 200,000 pounds worth, had slid off the decks of one of their ships in mid-Atlantic and been lost, as Tennyson put it so nicely, evermore in the main. Not exactly an everyday occurrence in the life of a publishing house, but one that might have provided a suitably cryptic title for an occasion of this kind. In either case, in fact, and not inappropriately, in the tradition of academic book titles, it would have been left to the subtitle of the talk to give some idea of what it is to be about, rather portentously, reflections of an academic publisher. Indeed, what follows is simply a set of reflections, I hope not entirely idle ones, about the state of play in my ancient but continually evolving business. Ancient Cambridge University Press certainly is. This, by the way, is the preface to the talk, which, as it were, both clears the throat and sets the scene. Cambridge University was granted the right to print and sell all manner of books by Henry VIII in 1534. That right has been exercised continually since 1584, which makes us not only old, but, to be precise, we believe, the oldest press in the world. We are also extremely big. In terms of the number of new titles published per annum and of the total number of titles in print, we are running at almost 1,000 a year in the former category and over 7,000 in the latter. We are one of the biggest publishers in the world and certainly the biggest university press. In 1984, it was calculated by the editorial director of the University of California Press that, I quote, One in perhaps 10 scholarly works published in English is now carrying a Cambridge imprint. We are then quite a big business, employing over 400 staff in offices in Britain, the United States, and Australia. But we are also a department of Cambridge University, governed by a syndicate of the Council of Senate, with no independent existence in law. The directory in the lobby of our office building, well, it's not our office building, but the one we live in, on 57th Street rather whimsically announces that the seventh, eighth, and ninth floors are occupied by the Chancellor, Masters, and Scholars of the University of Cambridge. For that, like that of the university itself, is our official title. I guess they would be even more crowded than we are in there. So, a university department owned by and responsible to the university, but at the same time a big business competitively trading in a competitive marketplace, Our annual earnings amount to something over twice those of the Royal Shakespeare Company, the Royal Opera House, the English National Opera, and the National Theatre combined. We issue some 7 million individual units of books, Bibles, journals, cassettes, and micro-software each year. Henry VIII could hardly have foreseen that. That was the preface. Now some reflections about what the advertising people would call maintaining traditional standards in a changing world. Changing it is, changed it undoubtedly has. Twenty years ago, the economies of Western Europe and North America were booming loudly. New universities were being opened. Old and new alike were well-funded relative to today. Libraries, relatively, were buying books hand over fist. Not surprisingly, university presses flourished too, and the prevailing economic climate established what might with hindsight be termed the three fixed laws of traditional academic publishing. One, scholarly books sold in large quantities. Twenty years ago one would confidently print 2,000 copies of a monograph on Henry Vaughan or Fanny Burney, 3,000 of a book on Pope or Shelley, 4,000 on Chaucer or Dickens, and 5,000 or more of a mainstream study of Shakespeare. Second law, the active sales life of such books was a long one, three or four years at several hundred a year, and up to another 10 at a respectable 50 to 100 a year. Respectable not least in that the revenue far outstripped the costs of warehousing, distribution, and related overheads. Three, third law. Just as the prices of new books were relatively low because of static manufacturing costs and the high volume of sales, so the backlist Even though it represented well over 50% of unit sales, the backlist was virtually never repriced. The book came out for one and sixpence in 1910, it cost one and sixpence in 1950. How very different things are today, almost exactly 20 years since the Six-Day War, that marked symbolically or actually the beginning of the twin evils of the 1970s, recession and inflation, Today we would cautiously print just 900 copies of the same book on Fanny Burney and we probably wouldn't do the one on Vaughan at all. We'd do a thousand of the one on Pope, 1100 of the Chaucer, maybe 1400 of the Shakespeare. Sixty percent of the lifetime sales of each would be made in the first six months, 80 percent in the first 18. By the fourth year after publication, sales would probably be down to single figures prices are, or are perceived to be, immeasurably higher, and the backlist accounting for maybe only 35% of the total revenue is rigorously repriced every year. How, then, has Cambridge, and I should stress that I can really only speak for Cambridge, managed to expand from an annual output of around 200 titles in 1972 to almost 1,000 per annum in 1987? 15 years. Still more to the point, how in the same 15-year period? Has it succeeded in transforming an overdraft so large and growing so fast that there was a serious chance the press would have to cease trading altogether? Transforming that into a cash reserve of such proportions that entirely self-financing though we are, I can think of no academically viable publishing project that we would fight shy of taking on purely because of the capital investment involved. The short answer to that question is, of course, good management. And it's the broad lines of that management strategy with which I grew up in publishing, though was not myself part uh, one of the people who formed. It's the broad lines of that strategy which prompt my reflections this evening. I mentioned that a runaway overdraft was turned into a strong cash surplus, money management. So first, the fiscal lines of approach. If each new title, through circumstances largely beyond one's control, sells only half as many copies as it used to, then you have to publish twice as many titles to stand still. But that means roughly twice the investment, which, in in times of high inflation, can rapidly endanger your cash balance. Bear in mind that at one point in the late 1970s in Britain, we faced an inflation rate of almost 25%. In crude terms, in rule of thumb terms, the actual production costs of a book, what you actually pay your suppliers, must be recovered within nine months of publication to pay for making the next book. And at least a proportion of your indirect costs, your overheads, must be recovered in much the same period if you are to be able to pay your operating costs, staff's wages, the telephone bill, and so on. Now, that may seem sublimely obvious. That's the way all businesses function. And indeed, that's the way that Cambridge and most other publishers had been happily functioning until, as I say, inflation and recession arrived almost simultaneously on the scene. The crux of the problem lies in the word simultaneously. Recession meant that one sold fewer copies of each title. Inflation, that one had to pay more to produce each title. 100 new books issued in 1979, priced at 1978 levels, generate sufficient revenue to pay for the production of only 65 new books in 1980. In Britain, at least, things were never quite so bad over here, academic publishers tended to react to this situation by pulling in their horns and cutting their output specifically by cutting their output at the most specialised, least profitable, scholarly end of their tertiary-level lists. To be fair, most of the publishers concerned, such as Oxford, Macmillan, Longman, Routledge, Allen and Unwin, are not exclusively academic publishers. The recession hit institutional sales above all, and it made good commercial sense to weather the storm by concentrating more exclusively on trade lists for a while. Cambridge, however, is an exclusively academic publisher. We didn't have the dictionary or Tolkien to fall back on, or cookbooks or whatever. And more important, we chose a radically different, almost opposite strategy for weathering the recessionary storm. We chose to expand out of trouble. And to do so, we adopted what amounted to an almost revolutionary pricing policy. Revolutionary may seem an extreme word to use, but at the time, it was little short of that. The policy was based not on the anachronistic custom and practice of traditional scales of book prices. I say anachronistic. Uh, I referred earlier to pricing 70, 1979 books at 1978 prices. Uh, I wonder whether there is anything more resistant than books to price rises. Everybody here will have gone out to replace a copy of a paperback or to buy one for a friend and notice that it now costs $4.95 when the one that you had originally was 95 cents and of course you and I are outraged at that but the fact that the cup of, uh, that a jar of coffee may have gone up even more in the intervening years tends to be uh, conveniently uh, filtered out of the uh, of the equation books do seem to be extremely resistant to uh, price rises so This policy that was evolved at Cambridge was based not on what I called the anachronistic custom and practice of traditional scales, however gentlemanly that may have been, but on a hard-headed and up-to-the-minute assessment of the maximum value of our product in the marketplace, put it another way, of the market's ability to pay for the particular quality objects we were offering for sale. In fact, Cambridge prices in the 70s and 80s rose at at a slightly lower rate than the UK Retail Price Index. That, I grant you, was small comfort in the US when inflation in Britain was running at twice or even three times the American level. And because of the resultant higher interest rates in Britain, the pound rose to something approaching two and a half dollars. Result, British books became unbelievably expensive in the States. That was a difficult time, and it would be disingenuous of me to pretend that it didn't engender a good deal of ill will against Cambridge on this side of the Atlantic. This pricing policy had two subordinate clauses. One, the exercise of strict control over print runs, specifically reducing them to what you believe are realistic levels in the circumstances prevailing, though I confess that throughout the 1970s we consistently overestimated demand, though we probably printed fewer than almost any other publisher of any given title. Reducing your print runs, which of course, by raising your unit costs, also has the effect of raising the list price. And two, second subordinate clause, the regular repricing of the backlist in line with the prices of new books. This gave rise to as much criticism as anything, the feeling apparently being that once a book is published, its price should remain fixed and immutable by some peculiar law of fair play, if not of nature, to which our response was, would you sell your house ten years after you bought it at the price you paid for it? Replacement value is the key to the equation. So an aggressive pricing policy for new books, the annual repricing of old, and tight control over numbers, these were and remain the only sure way of closely regulating and accurately forecasting your cash flow. And only by doing that can you achieve the financial security that allows you to repeat the phrase I used earlier, to expand out of trouble. If your rate of return on capital investment for last year's books, is less than your rate of expenses incurred for this year's books, you will first consume your cash reserves and then go out of business. If, of course, you have a university that is prepared to subsidize you, such as Cambridge does not, you can survive and continue to trade without taking the steps I've outlined. But unless that university has limitless funds, which it is prepared to put at your disposal, it will almost certainly demand that your output is cut in order to reduce your trading deficit. Editorial expansion, in other words, is firmly dependent on sound financial management. I've talked about output being cut and the abandoning of the more abstruse regions of the list. Let me take a specific example, that of tertiary level English language publishing in the modern languages. Criticism, not texts. The staple product of the academic establishment literary criticism. A dozen years ago in Britain there were several major publishers in the field besides Cambridge. Oxford, Longman, Edward Arnold, Duckworth, Macmillan and others. As the effects of the recession bit what had always been in financial terms a fairly marginal list declined inexorably toward and then below what were generally agreed to be acceptable profit margins with the result that the traditional British publishers in the field gradually pulled out to the point where the commercial houses gave up altogether, and even Oxford reduced its output to two or three titles a year. Cambridge quite deliberately expanded into the gap left by what used to be the competition. We set up planned series of monographs, Cambridge Studies in French, Cambridge Studies in German, Cambridge Studies in Russian, Cambridge Iberian and Latin American Studies. For some years now, our output in these fields has been twice that of all other British publishers put together. And even when the American university presses are taken into account, we are the leading publisher in the field in terms of numbers, certainly, and I hope also in terms of quality. And quality, of course, is the key. That is the purpose of the exercise. An increase in the number of titles published, along with the pricing policy I have have outlined, is not simply designed to safeguard or improve one's cash balance. That would be a sufficient goal if one were a commercial house with shareholders to satisfy and dividends to pay. For a university press, a favorable financial position is simply a means to an end, the end being serving the long-term interests of the academic community. The crucial word here is long-term. Cambridge's pricing policy in the late 1970s was designed to permit us the luxury of not dropping an academically important part of the list because in the short term it was hard to make it profitable we took and continue to take realistic decisions about print runs and prices in order to ensure at least a break-even operation, confident that the alternative of virtual embargo on certain kinds of books being published at all is still less satisfactory. Paradoxically, perhaps, it is tight financial control as a guiding policy that allows the commissioning editor to operate effectively without continually looking over his shoulder, book by book, at the accountant's or the receivers. It won't have escaped your attention that much of what I have said so far has anticipated, and I hope gone some way to answer, the question most likely to have been put to me afterwards if I hadn't raised the issue myself, viz, why are Cambridge books so expensive? The answer in a nutshell, I suppose, is that if they weren't priced as they are, there would inevitably be a great deal fewer of them. And that brings me conveniently to the other half of what I want to talk about. Quantity has been increased, but has quality been maintained? How has money management affected quality control? I'm not going to talk about marketing, distribution, warehousing, stock control, order processing, and so on. Important and perhaps even interesting, though such systems are, especially as they involve nowadays a very high degree of computerization. I'm going to concentrate on what I imagine will be of most interest to most people here, namely the matter of making books, of acquiring and processing manuscripts. I'll begin in medias res, as it were, because I want to leave the issue of editorial policy until last. I'll begin with sub-editing and production. Ten years ago, though our output was half what it is today, we had a dozen or so full-time salaried sub-editors on the staff. Now we have only one operationally something of a dinosaur though an invaluable one since he seems to be able to sub-edit in almost any language under the sun. Today, virtually all our sub-editing, our copy editing is done by freelancers administered from the office by a small group of sub-editing controllers and coordinators. In the old days, once the commissioning editor had finished with a manuscript which may or may not have involved blue pencil editing, of part, or all of it for style, content, organization, of argument, and so on. He passed it on to a staff sub-editor who sub-edited it. It's a very difficult word That Sub-edited it as he, or more usually she, saw fit. As a trainee editor, I can well remember seeing the 40-page letters that were dispatched many weeks later to the author, and I can well remember being in awe of the skill, the dedication, and at once the prodigality of the process. I don't think it's much of an exaggeration to say that the Cambridge sub-editing department in those days, run by Judith Butcher, who, after all, wrote the book on the subject, was unrivaled among university presses. Once a manuscript had been through that mill, it was right. We got it right, right down to the diacritical marks on the Albanian and checking your quotations from Hesiod. But the money, and indeed the time, involved in providing this kind of service as standard and then absorbing it as an overhead, rather than costing it directly against each book, became ever harder to justify as the sales and profitability of the average monograph declined. It became clear that a new system had to be involved, and that's what evolved, and that's what was done. Today, the commissioning editor negotiates with the in-house controller of sub-editing for the services, at the precise time that he needs them, of a freelance sub-editor. Who is appropriately qualified to work on the particular title concerned. The three of them then agree a price in advance for the work that is to be done. How much work, what kind of work is to be done on the manuscript is decided by the commissioning editor, not by the copy editor. The commissioning editor may decide that the old style deluxe treatment is called for. We cut no corners with our collaborative Cambridge histories, our editions of Lawrence's novels or or Darwin's letters. But, at least by our own high standards of the past, we do find ourselves cutting some corners today when it comes to our stock in trade of short print-run monographs, which have to compete with those from other publishers for a share of a declining institutional market. The cost of producing such books has to be controlled. Bear in mind, a freelance sub-editor is an outside supplier, just like a printer, Her fee is not absorbed as an overhead. It is added to the direct costs of producing the book. Those costs must be controlled if the selling price of the book is to remain within competitive parameters. The balancing act between excellence and economy in sub-editing is the responsibility of the commissioning editor. He decides how much work needs to be done, and he himself will take the necessary steps in his editing of the manuscript or insist that the author takes them, and that might mean returning the manuscript to the author with instructions to carry out running repairs before the press will accept it. He will take the necessary steps to ensure that a lighter sub-editing job will still result in a book of acceptable quality. One thing is certain. The good old days when an author would submit a manuscript with a covering note explaining that he'd get round to the gaps in the notes at the end of the term and cheerfully acknowledging that some of the quotations were probably inaccurate, but that's all right, your sub-editor can check them. Those days are long gone. Such a manuscript would be returned, and the author would be invited to check them himself. Inevitably, and judged on the highest scale, standards have fallen. But I believe it is a reasonable fact of contemporary academic publishing, as it is in so many other manufacturing businesses, that the craftsmanship, if you like, of the past, the sub-editorial equivalent of dotting the I's and crossing the T's, should be subjected to realistic cost accounting, albeit, and this is important, not by an accountant, but by a dedicated academic editor, lest you end up with products which the market cannot afford or with overheads and costs which the publisher cannot absorb. If that sounds like money management again, it ought to, only this time it's the other side of the coin. Unless you manage your costs properly, you will in time be obliged to cut back not just an aspect of your service, but your entire service to the academic community. Incidentally, I believe that Cambridge sub-editing as a whole is still, relative to that of other publishers, among the most skillful and exhaustive available. Judith Butcher may have retired, but a lot of the people she taught still work for us. I might also point out, by the way, that quite apart from the saving in time represented by the sub-editors not generally having to write 40-page letters to the author, the commissioning editor say, having briefed her, that he's sufficiently happy with the author's style, that she does not need to address herself with much reference to Fowler, to repolishing every period, but that she should simply concentrate on basic issues, such as consistency. To this saving of time is added that of the whole freelance system, designed and operated as it is, to maximize the accurate forward planning of who will work on which manuscript when and for how long, and thereby minimizing, queuing, and significantly improving our overall production schedules. Producing books quicker is good for the author as well as the publisher. Much the same general principle of cost control applies to production. When typesetting and machining costs, not to mention paper, were lower and more static than they are today, it was appropriate to leave the choice of supplier and materials to a highly professional production department that was dedicated to and skilled at making books of the very highest quality as objects. I won't wax lyrical about the great days of Cambridge monotype flatbed printed letterpress. You know what I mean, But even more recently, um, during my early days at the press in the mid-70s, the editor could leave all production decisions to the production experts, confident that they would produce a handsome book, well-printed on good paper, at a cost which would not compromise one's ability to sell it. Today, that is not always the case, even for monographs, let alone for textbooks. Today, the editor... The editor will have run a set of figures through the appropriate computer program before he puts the book into production. He will have fed in details such as the maximum list price in both pounds and dollars that he believes the book should bear, the discount levels to be offered, the royalty rates, the cost of permissions, of sub-editing, of design if it's a highly illustrated book, the cost of special marketing requirements if it's a textbook, And the computer will then calculate the maximum he can afford to pay for typesetting, printing, and binding. He will then go to the production controller who is assigned to his particular editorial group. We no longer have a production department as such. And ask him not simply to do a nice job, as we used to do, but to do an acceptably nice job for a specific price. Estimates will be taken and the editor and production controller will then discuss the available options as necessary. In the case of a short-run monograph, maybe save £400, almost a tenth of the overall cost, by doing without a jacket, blocking the front board with a colour-contrasting panel instead. Will cheaper paper compromise the reproduction quality of the illustrations? In the case of a textbook with a primarily paperback sale, could we face an unsewn hardcover too? Or should we revise the preliminary design specification in such a way that the book might not look quite as nice, but at least it will come out as an even working? If we're doing a first-time paperback of a much-praised high-level study in German literature or medieval history or Islamic religion with a print run of maybe only 900, sad but true, could we bear the quality considerations of manufacturing it in Malta, cheap, cheerful, and not very pretty, paper that fell off the back of a ship in 1942 and has been drying in the sun since. Or if it comes to that, let's finish these otherwise rather depressing examples on a high note. Uh, If to take a recent instance, we have a really major study of 200 years of cultural and intellectual history like Max Schultz's Paradise Preserved for which the author's university has provided a not inconsiderable subsidy, just how many stops shall we pull out, buckram binding, heavy coated paper, single-sided printing to ensure a really crackerjack production job that will remind the world that Cambridge is still capable of making beautiful books. Of course, we'd like all our books to be like that, and we're sorry that they can't be. More often, most often, we have to make do with trying to produce the best object possible within a very strict, indeed restricting, budget. This naturally places a great burden on the production staff, who have to shop around with a vengeance and use all their considerable skills to come in on budget without compromising the quality which they, above all, wish to maintain, without compromising it too far. It's only fair that I should acknowledge that the pursuit of economy has, over the last few years, given rise to some production jobs from Cambridge which I consider inadequate. And I can be quite hard-hearted about these things, though if I consider it inadequate, probably you would agree with me. the kind of books of which none of those involved have been particularly proud. Standards cannot be maintained if costs and corners are cut too far, in too doctrinaire a manner. Each case must be decided on its own needs and merits. Each is, again, a difficult balancing act, which demands skill and dedication to accomplish successfully. Most of the time, I think, we do, we do all right. Even Cambridge's most run-of-the-mill books generally represent a worthwhile contribution to the art of contemporary book production. I'd like to devote the rest of my remarks to matters of editorial policy, for these are the issues with which I myself am most concerned, and also I believe those which hold the key to the whole publishing operation. Excuse me. You can't expand your output and maintain the academic quality of your list without taking on more editor's Cambridge now has almost 50 editors, of varying degrees of seniority, of course. This high number carries two major implications. First, it brings with it a high degree of academic specialization. Unlike the situation with smaller publishers, very few of our editors are expected to take commissioning responsibility for subjects in which they have no formal academic training. Some have to. I spent a couple of years looking after Arabic studies. I can't get much beyond salaam alaykum. On the other hand, we have three editors just to look after our literature list. The second implication is that a press with 50 editors publishes in a very broad range of subjects. Let me expand on this. We believe firmly in diversification, and for two good reasons. One, it is appropriate that the largest of university presses should reflect the fullest range of mainstream academic studies. Such, we believe, is essential to our function and our standing in the scholarly community. And two. In publishing business terms, publishing business terms, diversification in depth is crucial to the long-term financial security of the operation. Let me expand a little on that. Fifteen years ago, Cambridge's list consisted of tertiary level books in a wide, but by no means sweeping, range of subjects. School books designed principally for the already declining traditional English grammar school curriculum, a number of learned journals, and the Bible. Let me review how things have changed and expanded. The dear old myth that Oxford and Cambridge live off the Bible, living off moral earnings, is now just that, a myth. Revenue from the Bible and prayer book, which comprised over 20% of our total earnings in the early 70s, has declined now to less than 8%. Partly, of course, because of the effect of our expansion in other fields, but it was going to decline in any case for two main reasons. The King James Bible no longer holds its, tradi- its traditional position of preeminence in the American market, for a long time now our most important market for Bibles. Two, people are ever more inclined to buy their Bibles bound in Kidron or skyvertex, or in cloth substitute or even in paperback, tell it not in Gaff publish it not in the streets of Ascalon. That's the King James Version. The New American Standard Version reads proclaim it not in the streets. We've changed with the Times, too. We publish the revised version, the New English Bible, the New American Standard Version and the revised Standard Version as well as the King James, which in Britain, as you may know, we are one of only four publishers licensed by the Crown to print at all. But in a highly competitive market where savage price cutting and dumping are now commonplace, the traditional hide-bound Cambridge Bible has gone the way of hide upholstery in automobiles. You don't get it as standard on a Ford, and that's what most people drive. So much for decline. Now let's look at expansion. A dozen years ago, Cambridge published around 40 journals. The figure now is over 90 and rising. That makes Cambridge the third-largest English-language journals publisher in the world, behind the vast empires of Elsevier and Pergamon, but well ahead of any other university press. The dual value of this expansion is plain. We are now patently serving more parts of the academic community more actively by publishing more journals. Moreover, during the worst of the recession, when institutional book budgets were being cut back severely, the continuation budgets for journals were far less affected. Journals now represent 20% of our total turnover. In that sense, they've almost ref- replaced the Bible. Our school book publishing, too, has undergone expansion, massive expansion and change, not just in the number of titles issued and the number of subjects offered, but more radically in the levels of ability catered for and in the medium, even in the medium of publication. We are now one of the leading British publishers, at least, of educational micro software. An example of research and development prompting one to change with the times to identify a developing gap in the market and to expand into it. Britain, for reasons that I have never understood, has more personal computers per capita of the population than any other country in the world. Um, And in order to prevent little Jimmy from playing Space Invaders all day on Saturday, the market for educational software is... uh, really rather considerable, quite apart from the sales, of course, structured courses to schools. In the midst, now, I'm sorry, I'm jumping. Yes, I was explaining that uh, school books uh, have have diversified into things like micro software and equally important uh, has been our move during the last 10 years into the field of ELT and TESL, English language teaching, and in North America and Australia, teaching of English as a second language. Uh, Fifteen years ago, we had no list at all in this area. Today, it represents something over 10% of our total turnover. Again, if you like, making up for decline in Bible sales. As one thing goes down, something else must come up to replace it, diversification. But in the midst of all this diversification, Cambridge's stock in trade is still based in tertiary-level publications, above all in monographs, in postgraduate research work. That's what we're known for in universities around the world, and insofar as it knows or cares, by the public at large. That's what our reputation is built on and will largely consist, largely continue to rest on. Such books, the high level postgraduate study, account both for the largest number of our publications each year and the single greatest source of our income. So finally, how have we gone about developing our lists of monographs? I'll take the example that I'm most familiar with our list in English literature or rather literature in English. The adjustment of terminology is important for our list in American literature is in many ways exemplary. The adjective of course refers to operating method. In 1980 Cambridge's list in American literature comprised four books two of them on Henry James who we've always managed to regard as English, really. Well, he was for the last six weeks or so. Sales of literary criticism, 1980, were declining across the board. But English literature remained too important and too high-profile a component of most publishers' lists for it to be cut back or abandoned in the manner of modern languages. So output in English literature from publishers in general remained more or less constant. I'm talking... Again, let me stress about literary criticism, not about texts. Output from publishers in general remained constant or even rose. The world's market, the world market purchasing power declined. Commercially, on the Cambridge principle at least, the time seemed right to broaden the product base by expanding and diversifying, by moving sideways into American literature, adding another, hopefully more profitable, string to the bow. And if this isn't mixing the metaphors too much, putting another notch in the academic range of our publications. There was a further and related reason for this move. The United States is by far our largest single market. The operation of our New York branch, our American branch based in New York, is on a par with that of the biggest American university presses. Even when you measure the size of that operation only in terms of the number of titles actually commissioned by the branch itself which represent less than a quarter of our total output. Under the circumstances, it seemed natural to go into American literature. So a decision was made, and a well-tried system of list-establishing rolled into action. It's no exaggeration. We, we have a system. Some might say almost for colonizing subjects. Its precise operation and fine-tuning will vary from subject to subject, but its basic principles remain constant. The way into any new subject is to lay down foundations on tried and trusted principles, to go for the fundamentals, to tap that vein of scholarly writing which most academics are involved in most of the time. In literature, the writing of high-level critical and historical studies, monographs. The quickest and most effective way of establishing oneself in serious monograph publishing in a given subject is by establishing a series. A press editor, however expert he may be in the discipline concerned, and the Cambridge editor given responsibility for setting up our list in American literature was certainly not an expert in the subject, a press editor is inevitably desk-bound for most of the time. He might manage two or three editorial trips a year, say up to eight weeks on the road and attending conventions such as MLA, but there's no realistic chance that in less than a period of three or four years, he could hope to talk with sufficient academics of the right calibre, writing interesting books that are not already promised elsewhere, and thereby form his list. Doing things by correspondence may be quicker, but for fairly obvious reasons, it's less satisfactory. In simple logistical terms, apart from anything else, it's far more satisfactory to secure the services of a group of expert academics, say, a general editor and an advisory board, who, not to put too fine a point on it, will do the work for him, for the press editor, for a remuneration that I think can only be described in financial terms as modest. They, assuming they have been well chosen, will know what is going on in the subject, at least in their own particular areas of the subject, hence usually a group rather than an individual. They will know who the rising as well as the established stars are, who is writing what, where, what new areas of research are attracting attention, And hopefully, what new approaches display signs of being more than just gratuitously trendy, and so on. The series editor and his board will, as I say, do much of the press editor's job of acquiring the highest quality manuscripts. And, and this is important when setting up in a new field, acquiring some of them almost immediately. Cambridge Studies in American Literature and Culture, established in 1981, following our editor's initial exploratory trip around major universities in 1980, published its first four titles in 1983, and now has some 25 volumes in print. Topics as diverse as Puritan conversion narratives and a history of Niagara Falls as an icon of the American sublime. (laughs) The choice of one series editor, or editors, of course, is crucial. That's where the press editor earns his money. He must select people of outstanding ability, well-respected, well-connected, practical and businesslike, energetic, whom he can work with comfortably, maybe at several thousand miles' distance, and who have broadly the same publishing goals in sight. Having appointed them, the press editor must keep in regular contact, reviewing the performance of books published and the lessons to be learned therefrom, planning and discussing the next generation of books. I should perhaps stress that the series editor does not in himself independently or unilaterally decide which books are to be published. He makes recommendations based on reports by expert outside readers, recommendations which the press editor then puts before, in Cambridge's case, the University Press Syndicate, the 16 senior academics who alone can authorize formal offers of contract. So, first, monographs, probably through a series. Next, if the subject calls for it, in Cambridge's case, a peculiarly Cambridge form of monographic extension, the collaborative history. Contracts for the five-volume Cambridge History of American Literature were signed in 1984, publications scheduled to begin in 1989. In fact, it may be that we will have to call it the new Cambridge History of American Literature, For somewhat surprisingly, it was the then distinctly British and insular rather than international Cambridge University Press that published three-volume Cambridge History of American Literature in 1917. Right, a monograph series and a collaborative history, a respectable level of output at the heavier postgraduate end of the spectrum. The next thing to go for was a series of books aimed squarely at undergraduates, broadening the range and level of products in which we were investing and from which we hope to derive our income, putting more eggs in the basket. We evolved an idea for a series of books such as did not already exist, each of which would consist of specially commissioned essays by several hands on a single major American novel, those novels which are commonly studied by first and second year undergraduates doing survey courses in American literature. We, the publishers, had the idea for the series and named it straightforwardly, The American Novel. We approached and appointed a series editor We agreed the first 12 titles with him and then relied on his expertise to select individual volume editors who in turn with him would commission the individual essays in the volume and provide an introduction. We set up the series in 1984 and by the end of 86 had published six volumes. Three more are in the press, further four are being written. The aim was to publish cheap paperbacks which along much the same lines as Prentice Hall's long-running 20th Century Views series, and I invoke another publisher's pioneering model unashamedly, a series which would offer an obvious first line of recourse for students who wanted or needed to read criticism alongside or even instead of the text itself. (laughs) Sales of the first six volumes suggest the formula has been welcomed in the marketplace. We've recently given the go-ahead for a further 16. I might note that the press editor earns his money twice over with a series such as this. Not only must he appoint the right person to run it as general editor and then service him regularly, as in the case of a monograph series, he must also be prepared for hands-on blue pencil editing of the manuscripts when they are delivered to the press, such as he does not generally have to do in the case of postgraduate monographs. Persuading leading academics to write not for their peers but for their students is not always an easy matter. As one of the volume editors in this series put it to me, students might read them, but they sure as hell don't review them. The editor must be prepared to edit, to simplify style and argument as he deems appropriate, and of course he must be prepared. In 1983, the opportunity arose to acquire the publication rights outside the United States and Canada to the Library of America, a series with which I'm sure you are all familiar. We duly acquired them, and since 1984 have published 35 volumes, selling them, albeit in very modest quantities compared with a domestic American sale, selling them literally from China to Peru. I would like to cite the example of the Library of America to emphasize once again how essential to the formation and prosecution of a press's editorial policy is its secure cash balance. To take on the Library of America, to buy in and publish 16 volumes in the first eight months involved a major investment. Then, when it turned out that we had overestimated demand and bought in too many copies, to the extent that after publishing 35 volumes, we have yet to recoup the loss made on the first 16, we were able to decide, we had the luxury of deciding, to continue with the series on the grounds that, A, in the long term, maybe after 10 years, it would probably begin to pay for itself, and B, even if it didn't, it was too important a venture in academic publishing terms, in terms of what we are there to do for the plug to be pulled on purely financial grounds. Monographs, guides for undergraduates, texts. There's one other class of literature publishing, reference books. The Cambridge Handbook of American Literature, a SNP of 1995, aimed at public as well as university libraries, general readers as much as students and their teachers, and the three-volume, 2,000-page annotated bibliography of American studies, aimed at major reference libraries and costing just that little bit more at $150 the set, were both compiled by the staff of the Columbia Center for American Culture Studies. Both were published last year. We sold 17,000 copies of the former to a British book club, 650 of the latter to the USIA, Academic publishing has many markets. From four books in 1980, Cambridge's American literature list will have grown to 85 books by the end of this year. In terms of literary criticism, we are now unquestionably the most active publisher in the field on either side of the Atlantic. Much the same can be said, for example, for there are many, about our music list. We launched that one rather earlier, in 1976. Now we are approaching 200 titles and publish more high-level music criticism each year than any other press. More recently, we've gone into the history of art. We're still gathering our forces there, but I trust the people at Yale are looking over their shoulders. We don't do things by halves, and that, I suppose, is an appropriate note on which to draw these remarks to a close, which, though they have been very much about Cambridge's operation, uh, are nevertheless my reflections on how I think things perhaps should be done. Our marketing staff travel throughout the world partly to seek out sounds like the beginning of Star Trek partly to seek out new markets for new areas of the list. For example, we visit China regularly. Just imagine what the potential is there for English language teaching. Our editorial staff, by a similar token, whether involved in long established or developing subjects, have to go out and hustle. You can't just sit in your office in the late 1980s and expect that the best books for the 1990s will just be sent into you. You have to compete for them, and the best way of doing that is by publishing other good books, thereby establishing yourself as a leader in the field and attracting tomorrow's best authors. It's a self-fueling, circular process. You have to compete for the best books, and in a sense you also have to create them. You cannot leave the formation of your list purely in the hands of the academics. Of course, they write the books. We wouldn't have anything to publish without them. But it is our job as publishers partly to influence what they write, as well as, as is more traditionally accepted, how they write it. It is, I believe, quite fatal for a commissioning editor only to react manuscript by manuscript to what academics choose to offer him for publication. Of course, he must do this, but he must also set out to leave over a long period of time, leave his own mark on the subject. It is his business to know that the monograph on Henry Vaughan that I mentioned earlier is only going to sell 650 copies worldwide at any price, however good it is. And it's his business, therefore, to decline that monograph unless he has good reason to believe that it's the best on the subject for the last 20 years and will be for the next 20. Decline it on the grounds that the time, money, and resources at his disposal can be better used elsewhere, better used in the service of the academic community, which, if it's only prepared to buy 650 copies of a book, can't want that book very much. It is a peculiar fact of academic life that people often don't want to buy the very books they do want to write, and better used in the self-service of the publisher, who if he doesn't publish a majority of monographs that sell eight or even 900 copies, the difference between profit and loss being that small, will not in time be able to afford the luxury of that occasional transcendentally brilliant book on Vaughan. If I have seemed overly aggressive in some of my remarks particularly about money, it is because I feel I speak from a position of relative strength Cambridge continues to publish its fair share of unprofitable books, be they monographs on Edward Taylor or Hart Crane or Robinson Jeffers in our American Literature series, or Music from the Tang Court, Volume 4. We've yet to sell 250 copies of that. Or Sir Harold Bailey's multi-volumed edition of Cotonese Buddhist texts. I'm told that besides Sir Harold, there's just one other person in Russia who can actually read the said texts or the Library of America, or if it comes to that, to bring the example nearer to home for at least one member of this audience, a survey of the provincial book trade in 18th century England. <laughs> the reason that we can continue to publish such works is that our publishing operation as a whole is realistically managed. If micro software teaching, sorry, if micro software teaching new math to five-year-olds <laughs> subsidizes the Neolithic cattle keepers of South India. That's a title, not a pressure group. (laughs) It's one of my favorite. And if a $45 price tag on a study of the impact of Comtean positivism on Victorian Britain makes the publication of that study and of others of a similarly minority interest in the future possible at all, then so be it, and jolly good. I guess Henry VIII, with his entrepreneurial spirit, would have approved Gracias.